Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. And I'm here as always with my friend, my colleague, my co-host, Ross Ferguson, academic advisor to the stars. <laughs> Still got some stars? Adding some uh, stars? It's a new semester we're it's recording a, it's today. It's a new semester. I, I mean, we had... We had some names come through that, that uh, may look starry. Timothy Chalamet, is he no. going to be a student at Midwestern? No, no. to be honest, uh, the names that came through were exact names of famous preachers, oh. but were not the famous preachers. <laughs> so there's any Spurgeons in there? <laughs> there's no Spurgeons. Okay. I, did, I do actually have uh, a Madonna. Oh, interesting. Uh, I also have a William Wallace. Really? Uh-huh. Okay. Hopefully it's not a pseudonym. No. Well, who knows? Yeah. William Maybe he's Wallace. just playing a trick on me. He may be. Yeah. Uh, how you been, brother? We've been really good. I'm so pleased that we had such a great summer. Um, yeah, like okay. Our, um, our summer. So we finished the semester in May, and then we go back um, here just in a few days in, in August. And our kids are off for June, July, and August. So we've had a really great time of traveling, of relaxing, of doing different projects. Yeah. Visiting different churches, we've been uh, doing pulpit supply and different things, so visiting different areas. So we've had a really good summer. Yeah, you have um, a daughter going into middle school, right? Leah I do, going to, I do, yeah. Uh, what's the, uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't need nitty-gritty details, but that's, is that okay? Is everything I mean, is this a right? counseling session? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should do that later. Uh, I am. Because middle school stinks. I hated well, middle school. It was she, like purgatory. She's currently excited. Okay, good. But also nervous. Is that well, kind sure. of new thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm terrified. But I mean, going uh, to a new school so, would be nervous. Yeah, we yeah. did the, the whole, she got our locker, we went to her, all our classes. Rooms yeah. and we're meeting their teachers soon. Um, so yeah, she's, she's kind of ready for it. And to be honest, I think she's ready. We have twin girls at age nine, and then Leah's um, just about to turn 11. So they're very close together, but I think they're ready to start, like Leah's yeah. ready to start growing up. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous. You, you for posted, her. I saw the photo you posted of her, I guess, learning her locker, learning her locker, her locker. Yeah. And it, I mean, I don't know PTSD. I don't know. It triggered me. I was having flashbacks of just like forgetting my combo yeah. and having to look up my combo. Well, we and... made her do it ten times. Okay, uh, and it took us fifteen minutes just to do. Is it, it once. the dial? Yeah, kind? it's, oh, it's that's like the, those are the worst. You turn turn clockwise three times, yes. anti-clockwise twice, turn clockwise once, turn anti-clockwise twice, or something like that. Um, and I'm just like. One, why can't we just put a pin number in it? This is so old-fashioned. Uh, yes. Um, or just like the little dials where you put your Yeah, you three, scroll them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it was so, so funny because I, like that that's my thing as a dad. Like I want to help <laughs> them know how to do these things. Yeah. And when he was like, she'll be fine. Just do it once or twice. I'm like, no, 10 times and she needs to know it. So now at home, I'm like grilling her. Leah? What is your locker code? <laughs> Where is your locker? Could she pick that somehow? Set no, that? they okay, said it for it you. Her, yeah. and, and I did a trick question. I was like, Leah, who do you give your locker number to? And she went, uh, teacher? And I went, nobody, nobody. The answer is nobody. <laughs> so we're like a drill sergeant yeah. at home. But no, we actually had a good time visiting the school. It is exciting as a parent that your child is is growing up. I think I'm just... yeah. So Miriam and I got engaged when when I was 17 and Lee's about to turn 11 oh, and I'm now connecting the dots of why getting engaged at 17 is terrifying yeah. because Lee is six years away from that day and I'm kind of, I'm not ready, not yeah, even yeah. in the slightest. So I mean, my daughters both moved to Pennsylvania right out of high school. 
that was nerve-wracking to mm-hmm. some extent. The first time more so than the second time because at least the second one was going to where our, yeah. her sister was. And then my you know older daughter got married at 19, I think, 20. And um, that was freaky, yeah. you know. Um, but, of course, you know, Becky and I got married yeah. at that age too. So you just— I guess you experience what your parents yeah. experienced and it creates more sympathy. Actually, on, <laughs> for them. on the day of recording this, we're going to visit our twins' school. They get to find out who their teachers are. Now, Miriam and I know ahead of time who the teachers are, but okay. we don't know which one's which because our school goes, hey, your fourth grader teacher is, and that was the text message we got. Uh, well, I have two fourth graders, so I don't know which one's which <laughs> because it's so rare to have but twins. It's, so it's different teachers. Yeah, okay. but... Here's the interesting thing we're going to have to deal with tonight, and maybe this will be a later podcast one day in the future. <laughs> uh, for the first time, one of our twins is going to have a guy as a teacher. Oh, wow. And okay. I asked them uh, this morning, like, what, what teachers would you like? And they did not mention the guy. Um, oh. So I think tonight we're going to have some interesting discussions as to who's going to get yeah. the guy. And it's not like the guy's bad or something. Like that. It's yeah, more, yeah. it's different. It's just different. And I just know... <laughs> Uh, there's either going to be a jealousy thing or there's going to be a frustration thing between the twins. So I'm, I'm, I'm already planning my bribery of how to get out of that, you know, ice cream afterwards or something. <laughs> well, good. Uh, today, today's topic is caring for the poor. Mm-hmm. Why is it important? What does the Bible say about it? How can our churches better facilitate this ministry corporately and individually? I know this is your heart. This yes, has been yeah. something that, you know, uh, you know, this vital ministry, vital aspect of Christianity is something that you're quite passionate about. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'd let you kind of kick things off. I've got some notes and things too sure. as well. But Sure. Well, give, I'll give you some background. So like I, I grew up in a family that I wouldn't say were, were dirt poor, as in we literally couldn't feed ourselves. Uh, but my dad was a recovering alcoholic. There was lots of debt, lots of ill health. Uh, Mum was working, you know, two, three, four jobs at times to try and make ends meet. So I grew up in a household where I didn't necessarily want for anything, but you knew you were poorer than everybody else. Yeah. Um, and then uh, obviously when, when my dad passed away, my mom was working one job on her own and just trying to survive. And so then I went to work as a teenager. And again, you start learning actually, yeah, we, we are a poor family because the, the kids are working to kind of support the house. And then when I moved into ministry um, 10 years ago, 11 years ago now, all the church settings I were I was in were in environments where there was a lot of needy individuals. And I just always thought it was interesting that the church had this unique situation where they could step into people's lives, usually welcomed into people's lives that are struggling with needs. Mm. But more often than not, churches weren't doing that. Or if they were doing it, it had strings attached. Do you know, like you need to be a member of our church or you need to come to this event and then we'll give things away. So in early ministry, I set up a food bank in the community. Um, uh, we didn't have a food bank. I set one up in, in my first church or my second church. We helped those with uh, addictions who were recovering, trying to set themselves back up in life. In our third church, we had a huge homeless ministry, as well as an extensive kind of relief to the poor ministry as well. So this is something that's been my life as well as my ministry And I just think, biblically speaking, there is so much evidence, so uh, many verses woven right through from Old to New Testament that speak of caring for the poor, often financially, but not just financially. 
And I sometimes scratch my head as to why we're maybe not doing it as much. And so that might be an interesting question for us to kind of go into is at some point, you know, is there fear? Is it an unwillingness? Is it an indifference to it? Uh, but generally speaking, one of the things that I guess maybe I want to start with a, a good kind of question is why are people poor? Mm. And that's always a, a, an interesting question to start with because some people have had the privilege of never feeling like they've been poor right. um, and, and they don't actually know what it means to have poverty. They'll say, oh, you know, I'm struggling to go on a family holiday this summer. You know, that's not what we're talking about. What we're right. talking about is, can you feed yourself today? Can you have the basics of life? And if you've never experienced that before, it's very quick to judge individuals that are poor. So I actually had a church leader that once said, if people are in poverty, they put themselves there. Yeah. And so this judgment comes Poverty comes because you haven't worked hard enough, because you haven't studied hard enough, because you've had inappropriate relationships. There's an immediate judging level. And of course, that can be true. But more often than not, what I have found is that people are poor because they're poor, because their jobs don't pay that much, or because someone's done harm to them, or simply because... They're just poor. There's no real straight reason. Yeah. They just are. Well, and there's a cycle to it as well that I think is hard. To, it's, it's, it's difficult to swim out of. It's not impossible for, <clears throat> you know, for every person. And I think you're right. The, I, I think it's gotten worse, this assumption or the, um, I don't know, this logic of like, well, nobody has to be poor. You just yeah. work, if you just work hard enough. And that's gotten, I think, more pronounced in the last, well, in the, kind of the the rise of, you know, politicization yeah. of evangelicalism more so in the last uh, several years, particularly as the social justice conversation came about and people would talk about, you know, wealth inequality and, yeah. and different things like that uh, or systemic poverty or systemic injustice. The pushback has been very strong and perhaps in some areas rightly, and yet it, it doesn't deny or we shouldn't deny that there are those who are in situations where it's the poverty is perpetuating because yes. you, you cannot climb out. You get yep. in debt, you know, large yep. enough, or you're in a situation where, I mean, we call it underprivileged, I suppose. Mm. You don't have the opportunities yeah. that others do because of your, uh, um, you know, position and because of the, the hole you're trying to climb out of. It can be demoralizing. Yep. It can be destabilizing. And you think especially of kids. So, I mean, I'm even thinking of I've seen recently, you know, some— evangelical leaders that I, that I even know push back against the idea of like free lunches in yeah. public schools. So schools giving out free lunches, you know, there shouldn't be free lunches. Yeah. You know, there's no free lunches, that kind of thing. And I think, man, I mean, there are kids yep. in, in certain neighborhoods that that's the only meal they're going to have. Yep. They go home and there's nobody home mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe there's, you know, one parent home or a grandparent home or something and there's not dinner yep. right? or there's not a nutritious dinner. Yeah. There's nothing to sustain them, and the idea that we can't give them yeah. a lunch is just, to me, outrageous. Well, These are the most vulnerable people in our society. This is a good point because often uh, poverty is relieved by the government. Yeah. So um, it's the same in the UK as it is here. That If you're under a certain level of income, uh, you'll be able to access free lunches. So for an, uh, just an example, my girls' school, uh, the upper limit so your household has to be earning less than $40,000 your whole household to be able to qualify for free lunch and it, there's a, a stat on it that you can take off do you earn less than 14000 
So that's like the wow. lowest element they're expecting is possibly a single parent with a child could be earning less than 14,000. And so the government are saying, our expectation is you're not going to be able to afford lunch with your children. Here's my thing, and this is where the conversation comes in about the church. The government are stepping in. I'm not trying to be political here because the church isn't. And uh, well, this is something that we were looking at in our last church is we had, we call it a primary school, kind of elementary school in the UK, at 420 students that were part of that school, over 200 were at risk. And we were researching what would it mean for us to feed them each day? Uh, what would it mean for us to have a big meal on a Friday night to say that as you go into the weekend, which is likely when you'll have less money, we can ensure that these children will have food on the Friday night and then give them a kind of pack up to take home with them. And, and I think that is where the church, and I, I know we'll talk about individually, but I think a church as a whole, rather than kind of fighting poverty of what should and should not be done in society, just recognize that we have a unique opportunity. You know, no school is going to turn down a large financial gift from a church to feed children. No, I mean, our, our local school here, as an example, uh, they take in fruit and veg and give out, I think it's every Thursday morning, bags of free fruit and veg to, to the kids. Wow. It's all donated. Oh, really? The, so the question is, where is it donated from? This yeah. could be an opportunity for the church to step in. So I, I think... Often when we question the process of helping the poor, we are often not starting with the right heart yeah. because the process is going to be messy. It's going to yeah. be complicated. But and, and then there's like, oh, well, there's the freeloaders that will try and get it. I think the process is less of a concern. I'm willing to allow freeloaders to be part of it. I'm willing for the government to use it <laughs> as long as I know yeah. that we're reaching those that are desperately in need. At my last church, we, myself and another, um, one of the leaders volunteered at the at the local food pantry, the, the donations of which usually came from area churches. Mm. Churches would take collections and give, and so we had, you know, canned goods and all kinds of things. And um, on distribution day, when, when I you know, would volunteer for distribution day, you can hear people in the line. Yeah. Some of them talking about, you know, what they, what they want in gambling and all these yeah. things. Yeah. And... It, the temptation was to was to think, uh, well, you know, what are they doing? They're they're wasting their, you know, they have money, they can yeah. afford this. They're just wasting it, and uh, then they come here, and yet, I was, you know, chastened, always chastened by just seeing in the scriptures how close mm -hmm. to the heart of God this is. It, you know, even, even I mean, we talk about the church doing this, so the government or the government's doing this because the church isn't, but. Even like on a national level, when when the Lord was establishing the laws of Israel, yeah, to make sure that there was provision, mm -hmm. Leviticus nineteen, don't you know harvest your field all the way to the yep. edge, yep, leave the margins for the poor and the sojourner, yeah, and I mean just to to codify that, yeah, and then I mean and and that's just one isolated example you see over and over again, yeah, the concern and the connection to the gospel i think which we can maybe explore later yeah. but it's it's a picture of if christ is your treasure yeah then you will hold things loosely you'll yeah. hold earthly treasures loosely and our disposition towards those who have less or nothing yeah. is a depiction of how tightly we hold earthly treasures yeah or how closely we hold the treasure of Christ, I think. Yeah. I think we see this in the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, mm. a, a wonderful book. I, I've preached on it several times. 
the reality is that Ruth is able to care for her widowed mother-in-law because Boaz decided that he would honour the care of the poor. And more than that, I think the story of Boaz tells us that he was outrageously generous. And this is our, uh, something that I think when we care for the poor, often it can be a guilt trip. You know, here's tw- $20, here's a quick lunch. Uh, I've, I've served the poor. But in Boaz's ex- example, he was like, like Christ. He was willing to give up anything to, to help uh, Ruth. Uh, let me just come to a few verses. I think Proverbs are, is really good. I think Proverbs 14 is really good. Proverbs uh, fourteen twenty one: whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Uh, Proverbs fourteen thirty one: whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. So from a, a wisdom perspective, we're, we're learning that actually we are to honor and take care of the poor because it pleases God. It honors God to do that. Um, I was thinking Isaiah 1.7, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. We're seeing this refrain through the Old Testament of those that are poor should have someone flying their flag. Mm-hmm. Somebody should be caring for them. And that is the people of God. Um, so that's what we're seeing in the Old Testament. And as you were saying, Christ is that example in the New Testament of what he was willing to give up for for those poor and dead in their sin. He was willing to give up everything to do that. He was willing to give his life for that. So anything short of a Boaz example, Christ example, I often question of, are we really living a biblical concept towards the poor? Mm-hmm. But this is a we we read a book as part of the pastoral training center, the hospitality book. I can't remember the title of it Make, now. Making room, making room. Yeah, and that was really challenging because the author was writing about making room for those that are strangers to you. That how would you, you know, you would open your door to Christ, but you wouldn't open your door to people you don't know. Well, that's a juxtaposition. You you should be opening your door to all those in need and all those you can serve. And that reminds me of Matthew 5.42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Those that are in need, when they come and ask you for something, they're at the end. And this is something that I've noticed. People don't come and ask you for help when they've just realized they need help. They'll try everything. They'll try working more hours. They'll try borrowing money. They'll try selling things. They'll try getting a new job. They'll try not paying the rent. They'll try something to try not have to say to the church or to friends, hey, I am desperate. Yeah, I need help. Which means if they are coming to you and they're at that begging phase, there is a reality where they need it now. And to be honest, they probably needed it weeks ago and they're just coming to you. And again, scripture's telling us we shouldn't think twice about it. And I think so often we do. We think about process. We think about whether this is a real need. We think about whether they're freeloaders. And I think in some sense that's prudent to be good stewards, but I think we use it incorrectly far too often. The the beggar thing is interesting because when I kind of encountered the Sermon on the Mount, not for the first time, but as if for the first time, mm-hmm. like, like yeah, yeah. when it really startled me and wasn't just a sentimental piece of, you know, religious uh, text, but I, you know... Um, reading through it and thinking, Jesus is serious about, about all this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, reading some Dallas Willard, I think, kind of was instrumental in that. Willard says, you know, you know, Jesus is not considered smart by mm. the people who in the world think they know better. That, uh, he's not street smart. Yeah. And Willard says, no, Jesus is the smartest person who ever lived, you know. 
when you hear things like, you know, give to those who ask of you. Yeah. And um, it changed sort of my perspective on, for instance, just like panhandlers or yeah. just, you know, homeless when you're out on the street and someone's asking you for money. And it prompted me to, like, I felt convicted to say, if I have the money to give, I'm going to give it. Yeah. And there are lots of people who say, you shouldn't do that. You're going to use yeah. it on drugs. You're going to use it. And I'm like, well, I, I, don't, I can't make that judgment because yeah. I don't know. All I know is Jesus said, give to those who ask of you. And they asked me. Yeah. And I have it. So I, I want to obey. And C.S. Lewis talked about this a little bit. Yeah. Like he, he said, I, you know, get to heaven and rather be, I, I'd rather get to heaven and discover I was taken for a fool yeah. than, you know, be chastened for being yeah. uh, ungenerous and for being stingy. And, uh, uh, and I think a friend actually chastened him, you know, uh, criticized him. Yes. They were together and he gave money to a beggar. And the guy said, that guy's just going to use it on yeah. alcohol. And, yeah. and Lewis said, well, that's what I was going to use it on. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the, like the extreme example, but I think one of the things that, you know, for anyone listening, even for us, think about your own church. We often assume that everyone can afford that week's groceries. Yeah. And often or not, that's an incorrect assumption. I think we both know individuals that would struggle to do that. Not to go into a big deal, but international students, I'm, I'm one of them here in the States. We, we're very limited as to the visas, as to what we're allowed to do. And therefore, we're limited in how much we can work, how much we can earn. So, we're here because other people are supporting us. There is a reality where, you know, I think we've got I don't know, maybe 60 international students. They're, they're all going to be in exactly the same boat. Churches will have single parents. They'll have families who, you know, one salary and it's, it's just not quite enough. They're renting because they can't afford to buy because they don't have the down payment. So that means they're probably paying way more than they should. And then what do we do? We say, oh, you should really buy a house because then, you know, you're getting value back and you're thinking they don't have the 10, 20, 30, 40,000 down payment. Yeah. They have to pay this rent. Let me kind of switch gear a little bit and just think kind of practically because I think scripture is, I mean, you could argue from Old Testament, New Testament, from Christ to Boaz, you can argue all the way through the relief of the poor is in scripture. It is a certainty. It's something that we're called to do as Christians, called to do as a church. The process though can often trip us up. And I think yeah. that seems to be a problem. So if your heart isn't in the right place, you can just forget about it anyway, because you're going to not want to do it. So the heart is one place. And, and again, we see that all the way through scripture. Again, Matthew 25, famous for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. You know, we're seeing this refrain, your heart should be in a place to care for the poor. Now, if your heart is in the place to care for the poor, then there's various practical things that I want to give. I actually wrote a blog on this and I have uh, nine things. Uh, okay. So I don't know if you have, a, if you have anything you want to say. Can you pick the highlights? I can pick the highlights. Okay. That was the look on Jared's face of like, <laughs> you're running away with this. Yeah. Okay, here's one of them. Uh, cover the entire need. So this is something that I'm quite passionate about. If somebody's in need, often the church will give half or some, or here's a little to tide you over. A, a need is a need. And Christ covered our sin need outrageously, generously, completely. You look at Boaz. Boaz covered Ruth's need, not just for that day, but for the days to come, but for life. If you think of the good Samaritan, it wasn't just the immediate need. It was the needs for the coming days. When there is a need, cover the entire need. So almost every church I've been in, this has been an issue. Hey, I need $1,000 because I'm not going to be able to make rent. And there's a decent reason why. Okay, we'll give you 500 to help you out. Yeah. 
they're still in need. They're still going to have to beg somewhere for that other 500. So I'm a big believer in if someone comes to you with a need, either individually or as a church, cover the whole thing. And more than that, go beyond that. So uh, this is something my, my dad actually used to do. He used to go to the grocery store, buy a few bags of groceries, leave it at someone's door and then run away from the door. It was a very <laughs> slow run. Uh, he had a heart condition, so it wasn't a very fast run. But he would make sure that the need was covered. And he would do that days after days after days for families. And they would could probably guess it was my dad, but they never knew mm. because the need isn't just one off. It will more than often be a continuous thing. So yeah, that's number one highlight is cover the entire need, either individually or as a church, wherever that need comes to, if you can. I'm not saying, you know, that you were saying the beggar on the street, can you figure out everything in their life? No, but whatever you can do, yeah. do it. The idea of thinking limitations, I would argue that is our sin nature coming in. How can I limit what I give? Where I think the, the Christ nature in us is how can I, give more and more and more and more. So that's kind of number one. Uh, let me just do three, give and serve. So often when people are poor, they need finances, but we tend to just kind of sign a check, give it to them and then move on. But why not serve them as well? So this is something Miriam and I have experienced multiple times where people have given us a gift card, say for $100 for a restaurant, and then followed up and said, and we're going to babysit for your kids. Like, we're going to give you this gift, go and enjoy a night out. And we're also going to help you have that night out. We had somebody give us a spa vouchers. And I was like, mm, I'm not a spa type guy. <laughs> uh, but they're like, no, we want you. It's been, a, it was a, after a tough run of ministry. And they gave us spa vouchers and they said, you're going to need a whole day for this. We're going to drop your kids off at school. We'll pick them up. We'll give them dinner. And you just pick them up at the end of the day. And again, it's that give and serve so those that are poor in your church, it might be a single mother that's struggling, give the groceries and serve by maybe dropping some off, maybe asking about rides, maybe checking if the kids need anything. So don't just think it's financial, think it's whole life. Yeah. What is all the areas? Uh, and then the last one I'm just going to um, suggest is give without strings. And this is a big one. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. No strings. Give it in secrecy. Give it in a way that you don't ever get anything back. I think one of the best ways I've seen this done is we know somebody that puts money in an envelope and just pops it through someone's door and no one ever knows who it is. Mm -hmm. I actually know who it is. It was a previous church member, but that's what they would do. They would just go around the houses of those that were in need, put money in an envelope, put it in the door, walk away. No, no one has to know. No one has to ask. There's no strings. And that is the best way to give because the honoring is going to God. Yeah. Anyway, I've been talking for a while. What's your <laughs> thoughts on <laughs> You can tell that I'm passionate about this. Well, I, to me, coming back to the heart issue is really important because there's, there's a variety of things practically we can do. I think a church's heart is demonstrated practically. Like, I mean, it's not just lip service. You know, you see what's valued, just like in a personal, you know, family budget, in a church budget, mm. you see in missional emphases, that sort of thing. But it's one thing to just have the program. It's one thing to just have the emphasis. Yeah. You, you have to get back to the heart of the gospel. You know, I wrote down 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times— 
you may abound in every good work. Yeah. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. What is Paul doing there? He's yeah. connecting the, the Old Testament passage about God's care for the poor with the gospel in the same way that the Lord cares for those in financial need or material need. That's a picture of his giving to those who mm-hmm. are in spiritual mm-hmm. need. We yeah. are spiritually poor, yeah. and he's made us rich in Christ. Yeah. He's wanting now to kind of reverse that so that those who are rich in Christ share yeah. that heart for the poor. And in Galatians, where Paul is basically talking, he's trying to sort of, he goes back to, you know, talk about approving his apostleship or approving his, you know, the his ministry and you know the those who were testing him or or examining yeah. him, they you know he makes some reference to say like they approved my gospel. They just wanted to know that I was going to care for the poor. Yeah, and he goes, which which I was very eager to do. You know, yeah. so it was almost like okay, we see doctrinally you're in the right place, but do you have a heart for yeah. those in the margins? So you just see, I think, from Old to New Testament, God's heart for this as a picture of the gospel. It's yeah. not just social uplift. Yep. It's not just like trying to be inspirational. It's not just about you know, do-goodism, that's good as far as it goes. But we're Christians. We do things because of what Christ has done for us. And I think that is where some of these hang-ups and the strings and the protocol, some of that begins to evaporate when you just think, well, if I have Jesus, I have everything. And, you know, in a church setting especially, even if it's a church that's not wealthy, like— there's things you can do. You oh, can, yeah. If you have the heart to do it, you yeah. can scrape things together if we, you need to. We always say, my wife and I always say, everybody needs to eat. So, do you know, <laughs> yeah. if, if you have yeah. food, invite somebody over. I think it is this simple. If you love Jesus, you will love serving those that are poor. I, th- I think it is that simple. Yeah. And I think if that heart posture is there, it can actually be fun and exciting. I'm not saying poverty is fun and exciting. I'm saying the fact that we get to spend our lives helping others, it becomes actually so much easier. You know, we we found this in the past. We used to have big lunches on Sunday and we would just kind of, we would go through the church and just go like, you don't have lunch, you're coming to our house. You don't have lunch, you're coming to our house. And we would just invite people up. I think our biggest we had was like 30, 35 in our house for lunch. And it's chaotic, it's messy. (laughs) There's people all over your house, you know, things are getting broken. But I tell you what, they're just so much fun, those lunches, because you just know this is what we're meant to be doing. Yeah, loving people in this way. Just a kind of word uh, from my wife, because um, you know she's like the second voice behind me always. Um, <laughs> okay. She always said that when you give to the poor, be prepared for them to give back to you. Hmm. So often, those that are in poverty will want to thank you by giving what they have. And this is something we've noticed over the years: is that those that are poor tend to give most often. And it, because they understand, they understand what it feels like not to have that meal, not to have that thing. Yeah. So they're willing to give out more. And this is something we've had to learn to accept is let them have the ability to give to you. And so I was thinking one particular Nigerian family, a single mother with two kids, we would, you know, we were helping them out a lot as a church and just really wanting to care for them. 
uh, specifically at Christmas, you know, we got them Christmas decorations, Christmas food. We bought all the presents for the kids. Do you know, there was loads we were giving and she's just like, I want to thank you. So I want to cook you some food. And I'm like, no, you don't have to do that. And Miriam's kind of like elbowing me. No, no, she does. Like, this is something she wants to give back. And then we went and she cooked up loads of Nigerian food, most of which I didn't like because I don't particularly like <laughs> sucking on bones and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> okay. uh, but it is that, do you know what, for her, that completely made her year to be able to feed mm. the person that gave her all this stuff some food. So uh, when you give, it's not that we expect to receive, but we should be prepared for somebody to say, thank you so much, now let me do this for you. And that's part of loving Jesus. As we love Jesus and love them, they love Jesus and love us back. And it's not that we're receiving something back, it's just that is what Christian community should look like. And that's what we see in Acts 2.42 in the Fellowship of the Believers doesn't matter if you need, I'll sell this, I'll give it to yeah. you. And and everyone was doing that. Every need was covered. Philippians 2, think of others before yourself. All these verses are just always showing us, get out of your own life and your own comforts and your own woes and look to others to care for them. And it was something our kids said recently. We had, uh, I think, 10 people up for lunch. And we're like, oh, we're going to have to make this food stretch. And they went, well, Jesus fed 5,000. We can do 10. <laughs> and I thought, right on. That's, that's what I want to hear. That's good. Um, that's good. I think the only other verse that I want to just kind of lay uh, out there is 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19, really towards the end. It said, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And to work backwards, to truly have life, is to think less on this earth and to think eternally. Mm. And if you're going to think that way, your stuff doesn't really matter much. Yeah. You're willing to give it away. And we're, we are rich. If you have some money left over at the end of every month, you're rich. And... I know that's hard concept to accept sometimes, but if you have more than you need, that's richness. You've, God has blessed you with more than you physically need. The question is, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. You're going to keep it? You're going to store it? You're going to invest it? You're going to get those treasures on the earth nice and high? Or are you going to give it away and store for yourself a long-lasting, eternal, never-diminishing reward? Um, yeah, I think of the, the passage in Hebrews, right? The The, the Christians that were being persecuted, mm. they joyfully endured yeah. the plundering of their property, yeah. it says, because they had a lasting possession. Because they had Christ, they didn't hold the things around them yeah. tightly, joyfully. They didn't just endure. Yeah. They said, oh, this means we're friends with Jesus. Yeah. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. uh, I know Spurgeon said that uh, to be I part of I quoted that actually to a pastor once online without citing it. And he said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And I said, well, you need to take it up with the Holy Spirit because he inspired these very words that you're unfamiliar with, yeah. Pastor. Imagine um, Spurgeon said for his pastor college that to be in the pastor's college, you had to have reached one soul. You had to mm. brought someone to salvation. And if you hadn't, go and do that first and then come mm. to the college. Imagine if we did that for Christianity, for mm. faith, that to have true joy in Christ you have to show the action in poverty. Now, I'm not saying works-based salvation. That's what don't, it sounds like, don't, brother. Don't get me wrong. Don't I'm get me wrong. alarms. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying the evidence of our faith is those good works. James tells us that, that the evidence of our yeah, faith 
is the fact that we love those that are poor and want to care for them. That was a really creepy... Uh, you know, I just <laughs> randomly pressed that button hoping it, it would be something good. like a siren. It was good. It could have been the birds could, chirping. Who it could have been an applause. <laughs> That's right. Don't hear me wrong. I'm glad I picked the right one. Not works-based <laughs> salvation. I'm saying saved by faith alone and Christ alone by grace alone, then evidenced in your good works to those that are poor. There you go. Yeah. Well, hopefully some words of inspiration and motivation for you, dear listener, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church. 